You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and thanks for joining me, Sharon Noonan, on this week's Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102. With the June Bank holiday weekend coming up this Friday, we've lots of suggestions for you as to what you can do to get out and about. Before I give you an insight into all the events taking place over the bank holiday weekend, I want to give you an insight into running a business in the hospitality sector, which is no easy task in the current economic climate. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Not all food-related businesses have survived the recession in Ireland, but amidst all the challenges, many continue to stand up and fight in good old Munster fashion. One such hotel is the Fitzgerald's Woodlands Hotel in Adair, and Sales Director Elena fitzgerald Keen joins me in the studio now to give us an insight into the highs and lows of running the family business in the current economic climate. Welcome, Elena. Thank you very much, Sharon. Delighted to be here with you today. Elena, the business started in 1983, which means last year you celebrated 30 years in business, which is an incredible milestone. Can you tell us what was the business like whenever you started 30 years ago? Now, I know you weren't there personally. Well, you were maybe there personally, but you were quite small. But from what you've been told, what what was it like? Okay, well, I suppose my parents started off uh, with a four-bedroomed bed and breakfast um, in 1977. So I'm revealing my age now, just after I was born. Um, We became a hotel, as you very correctly said, in the early 80s, and we celebrated 30 years in business last year. So in a way, we felt old, but it's kind of cool to be vintage at the moment. So I think it worked out quite well. Um, my father's family had been involved in market gardening for years. So how they met was my mum worked in her uncle's shop in Adair. Um, and over time, when they got together, I suppose she became exposed to market gardening, even though her family were farmers. It was a different type of farming that they did. So they started at market gardening and my mother said she found it very very difficult being out in the cold picking Brussels sprouts and everything and some of my dad's family who were based in Kerry and kind of more tourism areas like Killarney and that they were involved in B&Bs so the idea of uh, I suppose starting a bed and breakfast um, came along and it went from strength to strength the hotel probably originated out of Ahanish Illumina at that time there were a lot of I suppose workers employees involved in um I suppose the building and the construction of the plant sent to this area um, and our hotel was born or as I always say is a product of Ahanish to a degree. The first challenge we had was after the construction of Ahanish finished um, we were in a situation whereby we were left with lots of bedrooms or an oversized ha- um, house for all the world um, but none of the facilities that a hotel would have or nothing that would make it stand alone. So from there we started to add bit by bit um, over the years culminating I suppose into the hotel and spa facility that we have as it stands now. You, you mentioned the spa there which is one of the more recent developments that is part of the hotel and is an absolutely fabulous place to, to spend a day. How has that um, impacted on the business, given that the spa isn't terribly, isn't terribly old? In fact, it's you probably opened it at the height of the recession. That's correct. We opened it at the height of the recession, but as they say, there's never a better time to open a business than then. Um, Riva Spa has become, I suppose, a number one destination spa, um, probably uh, up there in the top uh, few in the country, and we're very proud of it. Uh, Rivas has certainly brought us new customers insofar as, um, you know, I suppose a different type of market. It probably opened up um, more of a ladies and a professional market uh, insofar as kind of 
I suppose, more upscale hen parties, that kind of thing. But it's been a great asset for us. The challenge that we have is because Rivas has such a plush and almost near five star feel to it that we have had to, um, I suppose, significantly invest in our hotel. Um, many of your listeners are probably aware that we also have Fitzgerald's Vienna Once Hotel in Cork. And we would have over the years um, since we bought it about seven years ago, uh, invested a lot of money into it. Whereas over the last two or three years, I'd like to think that our hotel in Adair has had a huge facelift and we're continuing to do that. I think there was about 10 people on site today uh, refurbishing uh, bedrooms just to give you a bit of a feel for all the activity there. Now, that's the economic side of it. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about technology and how technology has impacted on the business and how it has changed over the last 30 years. Absolutely. Uh, Technology uh, can be absolutely fantastic, um, but technology can also depersonalise what is a very highly personalised business. Um, A substantial amount of our bookings, probably about 20% of our room bookings, come online online. in, I suppose in terms of delivery from our own uh, website that doesn't include all the other websites or online travel agents we call them so your bookings.com etc um, so I suppose that's one aspect of in terms of how it's changed another is whereby with wedding couples abroad for example um, even only this morning I was talking to a lady who was planning a wedding on behalf of her daughter who's abroad and that happens a lot now in terms of people being scattered around the globe and I invited her in for a consultation and we would actually Skype her daughter while she was there. So it just shows kind of the next level. So that's another aspect. There are also lots of tools available to us in terms of how we profile our guests. And it's it's quite scientific insofar as if we know, for example, if, if, if you're grouped together in, you know, that people who have children, for example, that have stayed midweek, that we're able to, I suppose, target or try and attract um, those families uh, for similar offerings. So it's very, very, I suppose, technology has been fantastic in terms of ease of communication and trying to group people and trying to match, um, I suppose, what we see the needs are, or how we can help people. Um, but it also can make the business quite, uh, I suppose, uh, it takes the personality out of it in some respects. I mean, you can view everything online and there's fantastic uh, information base, but you're not really getting to speak to the people on the phone. And, and sometimes, you know, I suppose it's about getting the balance right. It can be a wonderful, wonderful friend, but also we have to be careful that it doesn't end up depersonalizing our business. You mentioned weddings there. Has that always been a huge part of the business? Hugely, um, and and certainly it's now as important and as strong to us as it probably was up on 30 years ago. Um, It's interesting that lady I spoke about this morning, she actually got married with us in 1986, so we've hosted a few second generation weddings, and I suppose me being the second generation of the family, it's wonderful to see that loyalty over the years. Um, There have been lots of trends in weddings that have come and gone, I mean from the 80s and the flouncy dresses and the hoops and lots of flowers and lots of, I I don't know how you call them, like the rings of flour in, in your hair and that um, almost from the Little Bo Peep to Flaming Alaska, etc. But the reality is, there's a lot of those retro foods and trends in as part of vintage. And we enjoy embracing that. Um, our dessert trolley, which has been part of our histories, and I suppose that's probably one of the more innovative things that we would have um, introduced for weddings a long, long time ago. That's still very much sought after. And it's probably served at about 70 or 80% of the weddings that we host, albeit with a much more vintage touch now in terms of how it's presented and, and that. But there are a lot of great trends in in, in the wedding market we love I suppose our guests coming to us with ideas that they might have seen on Pinterest or other places and trying to create ultimately the day of their dreams because it's a one day only show Do you feel there's more effort put put into a wedding now than there was 30 years ago? Absolutely I mean everybody's trying to put their own stamp in it and make it very very personal and I suppose 
that's uh, there's an upside and a downside of being as popular as we are in terms of wedding venues because sometimes there's a, a feeling of well I've been to lots of weddings in Woodlands before they only do a particular type of wedding and that's not the case every single couple that we meet they bring their own energy to the day and I suppose it's up to us to try and capture it and deliver it in the way that they want to and I mean the most intimate wedding that I have hosted has been for two and the largest has been for over 400 and we've had everything from vintage, vintage uh, intimate vintage to Greek-style, you know, buffet weddings without the breaking of the plates, of course. Um, so there's a lot that we can do and, and we enjoy doing, you know, all the weddings, I suppose, that couples present to us and we try and make it like our own for all the world as much as we can. And when it comes to innovation, if a bride and groom come with all those ideas, that's fair enough. But for other aspects of the hotel, how do how do you strategize for innovation? Do you get together in a team regularly? Do you brainstorm? What's your approach to it? We do. I suppose to give you a, a very good example and something we're working on at the moment is Timmy Max, which is our bistro. And it's a very popular dining spot. Um, the challenge we have is when we go to introduce a new menu, which we do twice a year, we introduce, you know, kind of almost like a seasonal menu. Um, and I like, I suppose the first starting point we have is we, we talk to our customers and we ask them. So we have a few ways of doing that because we have a loyalty card program. Um, we also on Facebook, which we find is a great friend. So we put up on Facebook, you know, we, we asked our, I suppose, our customers and our guests, well, listen, what do you like? Um, what do you not want us to get rid of? Is there anything you've seen that you'd really, really like? And I suppose that was our starting point for the work we're doing on our current menu. Then we're very conscious of the trends and I suppose healthy food is a huge, huge thing. So it's your quinoas and, you know, all your super whole foods and everything. So we engage with a nutritionist to try and bring us healthier options. We did have some quite healthy options, but we, we brought them, I suppose, the next step in, in terms of making them really, really, truly perfect. Then obviously we have to engage with our whole team. So in the context of the chefs and the service staff and trying to arrive at, I suppose, the best form of delivery. The challenge we have is trying to reinvent, I suppose, our menus but not leaving too much of the old behind us and we have lots of heated debates then it's not only just deciding on the dishes it's well how do we present them and, and what format and how will the menus look so there's a real team effort um, I suppose involved in it but you have to do that if you want to get I suppose the best possible execution and the best possible delivery of it. Well one last question before you go because we're nearly out of time and it's very much a 24-7 business it is a 24-7 business you're married with two small children, work-life balance. How do you manage that? Um, it's a challenge. I'm lucky that I have a very good husband. Um, he works different hours to me, so he works probably earlier. Um, but also, when you have a good family support structure, we all help each other out, um, and that helps a lot. Um, but it, it can be challenging, I suppose. Sometimes we become over-involved in the business, but that's the nature of a family business. You want everything to be at its best. Um, and, you know, sometimes there probably are, I suppose, things that you know family time and that can sometimes suffer as a result of it but then we try and make the most of the time that we have together and I suppose it, that's our way of balancing it. Eliana thanks for coming in tonight continued success with the, the business and give our regards to the rest of the family. Thanks very much Sharon. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Now, a few weeks ago, Ballymaloo was in the spotlight and it wasn't because of its delicious relishes or because of its dynasty of wonderful Alan ladies. However, all of these played a major role in the resounding success that was Litfest. I was there for a few hours and met some new and some old faces. And let's hear what people had to say about the event. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. 
So I'm here with Rebecca Cronin at Ballymaloo Literary Festival. Rebecca, how's it all going? Great, Sharon. It's lovely to meet you in person this time. What has been the highlight of the weekend so far? For myself, meeting and listening to Diana Kennedy, the 91-year-old lady who's travelled from Mexico to be with us here, who uh, arrived like a rock star with leather, leather pair of trousers on and ready to take on the uh, crowds. Unbelievable woman, incredible stories, un, like just amazing knowledge, very inspirational. So she's been quite, quite amazing. Right now, as I speak, um, Sandra Katz, who's known locally or within the know, um, the fermentation guru, he's standing on the stage in the big shed doing a fermentation demonstration. And there's quite a lovely crowd all gathered around him, more of them coming as we speak. And you've lots of family events on today. Yeah, there are right now in the family area. We have um, seed bombs, which are lots of little children gathered around some earth and planting seeds into the earth to then water and grow, and bring home with them to see them actually flourish. Val O'Connor, bread on the table. How's it all going for you here at Ballymaloo? That's great, Sharon. I mean, I'm in my element, you know. It's uh, it's fantastic when you're when you're working away as a food writer and uh, like any job probably sometimes you wonder uh, what are you doing and uh, then when you come to a place like this where everyone else is coming from the same page or they're on the same page and they're doing the same things they're either food producers or food bloggers or authors and just people working in yeah the best levels of food I guess in Ireland and in other countries then you go ah yeah you got to get together with your with your peers every now and again. There's lots of people here that would inspire you if you're in the food industry. Who's your food hero that you've got to meet this weekend? Um, I got to meet Yota Motto Lenghi, who um, his event, well, all of his events have been sold out, but uh, he just did a really nice um, chat, I suppose, this morning in the grain store, and they were just talking about the origins of the food and everything about it. He's probably one of the most famous chefs at the moment, and, um, and I got him to sign my book. I kind of meant to get him to sign his book, but now I have his signature on my own book. And uh, and someone just gave me a really good idea of getting lots of other chefs to sign my book, so I have a special souvenir. Oh yeah, and my other highlight, of course, uh, which is actually probably higher up, was that uh, I signed my book for Doreen Allen yesterday. And you've been doing some demonstrations. What have you been cooking up for people? Well, I was asked by Kerry Gold, uh, which, in fairness, is one of, I mean, who doesn't love butter? Kerry Gold is an amazing brand. And... Uh, yeah, they asked me to do two demos here. So yesterday I did uh, box tea, which is in my book. and uh, But I made a little kind of more fancy version. I made them like blinis. So little box tea pancakes and topped them with burnt smokehouse smoked salmon. A little bit of creme fraiche and chives. And uh, Brigitte from the Burn Smokehouse, as you know, she's hosting the Burn Slow Food event next weekend. So it was nice to pair up with someone who's uh, yeah such a great producer as she is. I'm here with Gail Porter, Cookies and Cakes, which are decorated by hand. Lizzie Mays is the name of the company. It is indeed. Gail, these just look amazing. You have all sorts <laughs> of pictures and designs on them, and it looks yeah. like a, a serious amount of work must go into this. It is a serious amount of work, yeah. They're all decorated by hand, so I do everything from making the cookie dough, rolling it, cutting it, baking it, to making the royal icing and piping all the designs by hand. So, yeah, they, they are very time-consuming. And when did you start this business? About a year and a half ago, um, and it's probably started the cookies just over a year ago. So um, I haven't been doing it that long, really, but just have had quite a bit of practice over the last year. And Apparently what, a steady hand. What were you doing before then? I had been chefing in Galway for a couple of years, and previous to that I'd done the 12-week course here in Ballymaloo. 
and previous to that I spent about nine years working in offices after a business degree so it was it's a bit of a change of direction from that but it's been great and what sort of people would buy these products are they for special occasions they are definitely for special occasions um, but they can be just anything really um, they're completely custom so I design every order and they can I've used made them for birthdays for weddings for favors um, for gifts um, I've done quite a few baby welcome baby gifts um, recently that I've put in the post for for the new mammy which is kind of goes down better than a baby girl and I see some corporate names in some of them as well. So yeah, absolutely. Businesses corporate would buy well. them for giveaways. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And, and Kerry Gold ordered a lot this week as well. So I think they were in Bally Blue House last night. So, yeah, logos as well. It's not, it looks like an awful lot of time going to make in one of them. Is it fairly labour intensive? Very labour intensive. Yeah, it does. It does take a long time. Um, it, it could take, for a very detailed cookie, it could take me 10 or 15 minutes just, just for the decorating. To do one of them? Yeah. Wow. If, they, if it was very detailed. Um, but you know that's that's at the top end but yeah <laughs> there's a lot of questioning of my sanity <laughs> and how is it going for you today at it's, the food festival it's been going really well yeah i've been talking to so many people and the atmosphere is just phenomenal it's phenomenal and are it's you here great. to sell the products or just to promote them i'm selling some and promoting mainly and i have some to sell as well yeah so i have some lit fest logos there on the go and Hello Kitty and the like. Oh, very <laughs> popular now. Hello Kitty would be hugely popular <laughs> in the Noonan household. Well, good luck with it <laughs> and hopefully much. we'll talk to you again soon. Good day. Thank you very much. I'm here with Charlie from Brock Gammon. What does your company do? Yes, exactly. We are uh, farmers uh, primarily um, and we specialize in uh, kit goat meat, uh, free range roseville and seasonal game. Uh, and I suppose we're really here to promote sort of the, the farming industry and encourage people to use byproducts from the dairy farms uh, is what we're looking to do. Uh, so there's been a massive thing in the last few years for goat's cheese. And what people don't realize is that sort of 50% of every animal born into the dairy trade is a boy. Uh, and unfortunately, those boys aren't deemed very popular in the food chain at the moment. And it's trying to promote their use uh, because it is a great product. Now, you mentioned goat meat there. Yes. What's it like compared to, say, beef? Uh, well, most people would compare it uh, closest to beef for taste, but venison for texture. Uh, that's the biggest feedback we get. Everyone assumes that goat meat is going to be extremely strong, very gamey flavoured meat, but that's not true. It's sort of the same comparison as mutton is to lamb, uh, kid goat meat is to goat meat. Um, and whilst sort of many ethnic communities would be looking for a very stinky billy to put into a curry, if you take it as a kid goat, uh, it's actually a very subtle, very delicate flavour. And what way would you cook goat meat? Uh, well, we found the most uh, popular way uh, to get people to try it is with our infamous Billy Burger. Uh, so it's a very good sort of introductory step to goat meat. So Kirsty from Silver Darlings, how's it going for you here at Mali Malou? Oh, it's going great. It's going all, all excellently. You know, there's a, there's a great amount of interest. People are coming from all over the, the, the place, basically tasting, looking, um, asking. So there's a whole load of talk that I've been I've been talking about my product and and the and the fish itself, you know. And who have you met that that has really inspired you in the food industry? Oh, I just came from the talk of Sander Katz, and it, he's just amazing, and especially like you know fermentation and how it's everywhere and how. You know how it's all good for us, and, and that's of course and I'm I'm doing it myself for for a living. You know, so that's that's been the most inspiring so far. Tell the listeners who Sander Katz is. Oh, he's a professor of fermentation. Let's say shortly. Yeah. 
So what are you hoping to get out of being here for the weekend? Um, I'm hoping to, let's say, continue being inspired, first of all, but then I'm really hoping to make loads of contacts. Meet those people who, who want me, want my product, and I, you know, I get it to them. So that's, that's the main aim. Well, good luck with it all. Thank you. My name is Ben Craig. I'm from Root and Branch Organic in Belfast. And what brings you to Ballymaloon? Slow food, Northern Ireland, Darina Allen, Lit Fest. I. It's just an amazing extravaganza of wonderful local food, and it's brilliant to be here. And what are you promoting at the festival? Well, we're promoting boxty, which is a northern dish. So we've kind of shaken that up a little bit and we've gone for some lovely local produce. So we've got some uh, smoked bally cotton hake, uh, which is just from down the road here. So we hot smoked that. We forged some lovely nettles. And so we have a nettle and spinach saute going on. And we have some really lovely rare breed bacon from Woodside Farm, uh, which is also very local to here too. And in Northern Ireland, do you go out and avoid drawing festivals like this? Yeah, so we've been doing that for about the last two years or so, popping up all over the place. And uh, we're working rapidly towards having our own spot in Belfast at the moment. So that's the next plan. And do you go to St George's Market? I do, yeah. I used to run a fruit and veg stall there. So we're very closely connected with Helen's Bay Organic Gardens. And there's a lovely farmer there called John McCormick, who for over 20 years has been an organic farmer and a real pioneer. So a lot of our produce that we use comes from him. So the rocket that we're using here is from Helen's Bay Organic Gardens. And you're waiting to meet one of your food heroes at the moment. Absolutely. We, we just heard that Ottolenghi might be swinging by the stall, so we're really excited about that. Tell the listeners who Ottolenghi is. Ottolenghi is an incredible man uh, who makes incredible salads and huge, big, amazing meringues in London and uh, you know pa- Palestinian-Israeli food, and it's just absolutely delicious to die for. Well, we won't delay you because I know you're very anxious to meet him, but thanks for talking to me. Thank you very much indeed. Fiona Uema, Japanese cooking. You've just finished your demo here at Ballymaloo Litfest. How did it all go? Absolutely amazing, Sharon. Um, we gave a, de- a demo in the big shed um, yesterday and again today. And I mean, the fundamentals of Japanese cuisine really um, are similar to Myrtle Allen's beliefs. It's nature and harmony with food using seasonal produce from local producers. And um, in my sushi demos, I used local produce from here in Cork and it was absolutely delicious. We used bally cotton crab for one of the sushi rolls. We used uh, Bill Casey Shanagari organic smoked salmon for another sushi roll and um, then seasonal vegetables from here in Cork and seasonal uh, salad leaves so you know we really use the produce of Cork but bringing in a foreign cuisine so it was just absolutely amazing and it went down really well with the audience and you've time off now so what are you looking forward to doing? I'm heading over to the cookery school and I'm going to see a demo with Ortiz Finest including um, that's Paul Flynn Maren Shanigan and uh, Catherine Fulvio we'll so enjoy looking that. forward to that well, thanks for talking to no me, problem Fiona. at all thank you another person that was at Ballymaloo Lit Fest at the weekend was Karen Coakley of Kenmare Foodies and she's going to tell us quickly what she thought about the event how are you Karen? Hi Sharon I'm very good how are you? You were drilling all over Odalengi whenever I saw you all over Yota Motolengi my food hero um, I have his cookbook Jerusalem and my husband and I have kind of discovered Middle Eastern cooking in the last year or so and uh any, I don't know, people might be familiar with his program as well, and he writes in The Guardian. But, um, yeah, he's my food hero. He was the one, I was one of the lucky, I think, 60 people who 
got the tickets for his demo. They were sold out within three minutes. I went to Ballymaloo to go to his demo, but I was in the big shed, I think, all of five minutes when I saw him. So we nabbed him a few of us and got a photograph taken with him and an absolute gentleman, just such a lovely presence. And what sort of things did he cook up at his demo? At his demo, he did um, he did fish kebabs, which I have made here myself, which were beautiful. Um, he explained, you know, let's say, things now like tahini. When you're using tahini, just to buy tahini from Palestine or Jerusalem, he said, don't buy tahini in a your local health food shop, which is where I had been buying mine, he was saying, you know, it's much better if you kind of, if you can get, it's a better quality, the ones that he has. Um, he cooked a beautiful dessert, which was made with goat's cheese and ricotta. He said, in the Middle East, they use goat's cheese in desserts a lot, but for the Eastern palace, they've taken it down with the ricotta, and that was basically in phyllo pastry, and there was like a beautiful orange and honey um, syrup then poured over that. That was gorgeous. A lovely orange semolina cake. Um, beautiful chickpea salads, just beautiful, beautiful food. And things that you would make at home? Things that you would make at home. I mean, I do cook from his book, um, and I do find, okay, you might have to you might have to source the ingredients, and sometimes some of the ingredients, the first time you you look at them, you might think, what's that? Like, there's the tar, there's um, ratal anus, isn't it, and sumac. But once you familiarise yourself with them, you know, you get used to them, and you can use them again and again. Well, it sounds like you were paying very careful attention to everything he said. So gold star for you, Karen. Thank you, Sharon. (laughs) And thanks for telling us about the experience. Perfect. Thank you. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. That was Karen Coakley of Kenmare Foodies, who was one of the many well-known tweeters, bloggers, journalists and food personalities that visited Ballymaloo. An absolute incredible weekend by all accounts. Well done to the organisers and I know that it is an event that is already in the diaries of several folk for next year. Another person of note that was there was Susan Boyle of Wine Goose GSV. Susan is going to be in Limerick this weekend as part of the Culture and Chips Festival and we will be hearing from her later in the programme. Up next, it's Geraldine O'Sullivan's report from the Kingdom and she is focusing on Dexter Beef this week. Now, Geraldine O'Sullivan brings you some tasty treats from the Kingdom. I'm joined now by Paddy Fenton from Dingle Dexter Beef. Welcome, Paddy. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. So, Dexter Beef is an unusual type of beef to have business in. How did you first get into it? Uh, I was always fascinated by Dexter Cows. I, I suppose uh, they had a big Kerry connection. They're synonymous with South Kerry. And then there was a Dexter Cow in the college farm in UCD when I in, in Lines Estate when I was in, in Lines Estate. And she was 18 years of age, beautiful old cow. And I always thought if I ever saw one, I'd love to have one. And for years I was kind of half looking out and then I saw an ad in 2008 in the Farmer's Journal where they start, they'd started to re-import them from the UK. So I bought three cows in Roscommon and that was the start of the herd. And since uh, then the herd has expanded, kind of. I bought every cow I could find, you know, they became more plentiful. So now we're up to about 100 stock. You started off in regular cows and then you moved into the Dexter cows. Yeah, we, we were always suckling. Uh, and, and a little bit of sheep farming, fattening lambs, and uh, I went to organic around 2004. And um, the Dex Extra cattle really suited the organic system because they were low input, low maintenance, and easy to fatten without high inputs. Um, so 
you know when I bought Dexter's it was a kind of an easy an easy system um, I mean they're, they're very easy to winter uh, they fatten and practically silage on its own so like I think native breeds really suit the organic system of farming where you don't have to drive them on at meal to get them to finish so that's really what the basis of it and then actually when you start to, to, to study and, and learn more about Dexter's you, you realise that the, in the UK they'd be huge um, they hold the beef in a really high regard um, we were a little bit behind the curve in Ireland uh, in so much as that we didn't appreciate we didn't realise what we had so the, the breed had become extinct in Ireland so it had to be re-imported back in from the UK And in terms of sourcing then you mentioned England is that where you went to source them? We, we, we never imported directly from England because I think at the time when we were starting to buy there was a blue tongue outbreak of in, in the UK and, and imports were closed for that for that period of six months or a year so generally picked them up here, there, Waterford, Roscommon, South Kerry, um, but most of the breeding, the initial breeding stock had come from the UK, and then our own herd expanded, and my colleague in West Cork, uh, he would have imported his herd directly from the UK. And in terms of the look of the cow, can you describe to the listeners what they look like? I, I, like the most the thing that stands out, obviously, about a, about a, a Dexter cow is the, the size. Y- if you can imagine... Um, a normal suckler charlet or even a Frisian cow I suppose the weight would be about between 550 kilos and 750 kilos whereas a dexter cow uh, the weight for the real small short ones would be 200 kilos 200 up to 350 for the biggest so you're talking about a half to a third of the size now you only produce a third of the beef at the end of the day but your input costs and your maintenance costs are, the same, are, are reduced by you know on a pro rata basis so that's the that's the obvious thing. They're tiny, they're really small. I don't particularly go for the real small ones. I kind of go for the larger ones um, because my land is reasonably good. My partner in Cork tends to prefer the really small ones because he's, he farms more in a mountain area and he's very conscious of the fact that he doesn't want to leave an imprint on the mountain. Um, and they come in three different colours: then uh, black, which is the most common, red which is uh, reasonably common and uh, dun which isn't isn't that common I don't, I don't have any dun cow uh, most of mine are black uh, they're horned and um, they can be pulled or horned most of them are horned but you can get an odd strain of pulled uh, they look gorgeous when they're horned with the lovely white horns and pointy and they generally be friendly enough yeah they're, they're, they're very good natured cows like I mean they would have been the um, they would have been the small cottagers cow traditionally in South Kerry where a guy could have a cow or a family could have the house cow they could have beef on an acre or two acres of land so literally the, the, the name they were known as the poor man's cow and you're breeding them at the moment is that right? that's right yeah um, I keep about 40 cows and my partner in Cork is about 30 and then we keep all the um, the followers to finish sell some breeding stock as well obviously and then in terms of the uses for their type of meat can you describe that to us? The Dexter is a dual-purpose animal, even though sadly no one is milking them anymore. It'd be great if someone did milk them because they were really did produce milk economically for, for the size of them, you know, really efficient. Um, but that's that's a scale. Uh, in terms of of the beef they produce, the beef is wonderful for from a point of view of flavour. It fattens very easily. It lays down uh, intramuscular fat, which gives rise to the marbling that you've often heard about. Chefs really. Uh, uh, are, are very fond of a lot of high high end prestigious chefs seek out Dexter beef for for special events and things like that, and the flavour is is amazing. Like the, it's it's you, you um, 
you, f- you get a wildness to it, almost like a, a gamey, venison-y feel. So a little bit stronger, maybe. It is a then. little bit stronger, yeah. If, you, if you're not, if you're not a committed carnivore, it mightn't suit you. And in terms of end products, then obviously you've got steaks. What other end we have, products we have steaks? We generally uh, the the Park Hotel in Killarney take as much steak as we can provide. We also sell the steaks to Fenton's Restaurant in Dingle, and then we produce um, uh, burgers, which we have our own burger mobile burger bar. Um, this year we're hoping to evolve and produce um, uh, Dexter Dexter salt beef, uh, which is really popular. You know, in the past, uh, Irish people have maybe undersold our products, where we we would label our corned beef as corned beef, whereas if we were producing something similar in the states, you'd be calling it with the you know little spice it up and call it pastrami and charge four times the price. So we're hoping to develop a salt beef aspect to our business and we will have the salt beef uh, sandwiches available in our burger bar as well this year. Selfridges in London have queues to eat Irish corn, Irish corn beef and they're calling it salt beef, you know, so an awful lot of it is... We know we have a good end product, so it's just the marketing. Yeah, so you can see that there's a market there yeah. for it. In terms of your business then, how do you promote it? How do we promote it? We could promote it a lot better because when you're a farmer it's very difficult to do the farming and to, to kind of close the chain. Uh, ultimately, if, you, if we want to make money and if we want to run our business successfully, and we are a cooperative of farmers, the only way we can do that um, is by adding, adding value to our product. That's by really cooking our product through our burger bar, so we're getting top price for it at the end. But when you're a farmer and you're busy doing all your other bits and pieces, it's very hard to close the chain. So this year we're after teaming up with a, an operator so we hope to uh, locate our, our burger bar semi-permanently in West Cork, on location in West Cork, so it means that we're not stressing out about travelling the country with it. Obviously, we'll do the big gigs that we have done in the past, maybe in Adrigat and things like that, at the Dingle Food Festival at the at the end of September, and the I think we're booked in to do the electric picnic as well. Um, but it's a lot less stressful for us. You know, when you live in a mm, kind of an isolated area or a marginal area like Dingle or Bantry, where my partner's from. It's really costly and it's very expensive and it's very stressful if you have to travel to centres of population to um, to sell your beef for the day. So by having it located semi-permanently, we'd hope to generate a kind of consistent business as opposed to a kind of an explosive business, which we have at the moment, you know. Really busy, followed by long periods of quietness, and then really busy. Yeah, I think it's tricky for any, you know, small business to, especially with travel costs and things like that. Yeah, travel costs are huge. And, it, um, yeah, and then it's a worry, like, if you bring a certain amount of product to a gig or to a, an event and you don't sell out, you're, you're, you're badly burned. You know, the, the consistent slow burner is, is the it's one better. you want, yeah. And so what's the best thing about running your own business? What's the best thing about running your own business? Uh, ask the independence and it's the satisfaction you get from from doing it yourself and the worst thing stress yeah same Lever- story yeah. Of threat, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's good it's grand you wouldn't have it any other way you know farmers have, have a great life we're very lucky to be farming in, in such a beautiful place and with such 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 great livestock um, to make it pay long term to make it sustainable and pay long term I think we have a, a fantastic vision where we're developing a brand a local beef brand based on organic low in, low input low carbon footprint systems it's it's based on a, on, a, on a social business which means that the the profits will go back to the producer in terms of 
we've two founder member farmers, but we've also got a loose collection of other farmers involved who will also get to share in the profits when and if they happen. Yeah, coming yeah. soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if people would like to contact you or find out more, the, what's best, the best thing place? is the Dingle Dexter Beef uh, Facebook page. Is is probably the most sensible thing. Great, it's brilliant. Thanks very much, Paddy, for welcome. joining us. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleunter. The Culture and Chips Festival in Limerick is just around the corner and one of the events in the programme is a wine goose chase. This is an hour-long, fun and informative show covering 2,000 years of wine history in Ireland. It's written and performed by Susan Boyle, who is on the line. Hi, Susan. Hi, Sharon. It's lovely to talk to you about this. Are you telling me that wine has been in Ireland for 2,000 years? Yes, it has. So many people think that wine arrived in Ireland somewhere around the 1970s with Blue Nun and uh, Matthews Rosé, but we have this incredible history um, that's related to wine and also connected to our agricultural um, understanding and knowledge. Um, And that's something that lots of people don't know about, so I wrote a show about it to tell people. And what inspired you to write a show about wine? Um, Well, I've been interested in wine for quite a while. I've been attending professional wine tastings for about 15 years and I've done my wine exams. Um, But I've been also working as an artist and working as an arts project manager. And I got a little email that asked me if I would like to do a piece combining those two talents, which was for a TG Cahar program called Keokonig and Machaksa, which tells the story of the Rices in Rice House in Dingle. And the Rices were a very wealthy merchant family that made their money from importing wine. And they had a crazy plan where they wanted to rescue Marie Antoinette and to bring her to Dingle smuggled in the hull of a wine ship. And I thought, hang on a second now, who was drinking wine in Ireland back then? So that sparked my whole imagination and sparked my research. And that's how I ended up writing a wine goose chase. And when did that all start? Is it a couple of years ago now? It is. It premiered in the Fringe Festival September before last. Um, so it's out on the road now just about 18 months. Um, and it's been incredibly well received. So I was down at the Ballymaloo Festival of Literature and Wine and it went down a storm and I had a sellout house. So I'm delighted to be able to bring it to Limerick for Culture and Chips now. Now, your own background is you grew up in a pub in Kildare, I believe, and you went to Trinity and you did a drama-related degree there. Yeah, I did um, a degree in drama and theatre studies in Trinity, and then I was fortunate enough to study at the University of California on scholarship. And um, then I have a master's in performance studies from Royal Holloway in London. So my academic background is in um, theatre, but my love is in wine as well. So I think that if you grow up in a pub, you understand the nuances and of the hospitality trade in the industry. And I just love being able to create a show that's about an experience where you actually get to taste the things you're talking about. And in a really lovely, warm way that's fun and enjoyable and cracking and great fun. Um, rather than sometimes with wine tasting, people can get a little bit, um, not necessarily intimidated, but there's a sense of... Um, but it's not necessarily as accessible as it should be. And this wine tasting and theatre performance is all about the stories and the stories that, that um, connect to these wonderful wines and the people who are Irish that are behind making them. Now, is it interactive in that do the do the audience get to taste wine as yes, the show goes on? Yes, do, which is really great. So throughout the performance, we taste three different wines, all with an Irish connection, and we finish up with a drop of Hennessy Cognac 
because that has a brilliant Irish story behind it. Um, so the story is based on the notion of the wine geese, who were a group of Irish people who left to find their fortune and make their livelihoods in wine in about the 17th and 18th century. But it also then brings the story into contemporary times and we talk about living, breathing Irish winemakers who are making wine all over the globe. No, it sounds quite serious, but there is some humour in the show. Oh, yeah, it's really not. As soon as you say scary things like one woman show, interactive, wine tasting and theatre, people go, oh, my goodness, that's not going to be very much fun at all. But it is. It's, it's lighthearted. There's definitely the basis and the knowledge, but it's, it's really fun and really enjoyable. Well, apart from the wine tasting during it, which I'm sure is a huge bonus to people, why else do you think it has been so popular? Well, I think because it's a story that just hasn't been told. It's a rediscovering of Irish history. And um, I think that when when we're such such an ancient country, but such a new nation, there are aspects of our history that maybe don't quite fit into what we perceive to be Irish. And particularly because we don't have the climate at all or the soil type to be growing grapes. And um, so it seems like an alien product to us. But actually, it was just the, the balance to a lot of trade that was happening here. So we were always brilliant making fabulous butter and dairy produce and having really great livestock and our boats would head to France filled with butter and cows and would come back they needed to come back with something as ballast so they came back with something that was non-perishable and that was the wine so it was part of um, our trade and really part of our economy for a really long time Um, and this is something that we just a lot of people just don't even know about like people don't even know that the reason why we had such a glass industry in Ireland and that water for crystal as part of our, our wonderful indigenous produce is because we needed something fancy to drink our lovely wine from. Um, and they, these are just surprising stories that, that people don't know about. And I think coming to the show, people really find out about these little nuggets of information. I always think that it's the kind of show that um, you go to and then afterwards in the pub or over dinner with friends, you're like, you'll never guess what. There was an Irish guy who invented the first commercial corkscrew. So there's lots, lots of different interesting points in us. Well, you have been all over the country with the show and it's not actually your first visit to Limerick because you did take part in the lunchtime theatre at the Savoy Hotel. did, which was a wonderful experience. I just think they're doing such incredibly good work for lunchtime theatre in the Savoy. The fact that you can come and see such wonderful performances um, and to do it over lunchtime and have a bite to eat. And it's so sociable and it's so great. So I was delighted to be invited to perform as part of that. Well, when you're not doing the show, what do you get up to? What helps to pay the bills? Um, I work as a wine consultant. So I'm working with Dublin Airport at the moment, which has come off the back of my wine show. And they're doing a large redesign of Terminal 1. And I'm heading up their team that are manning the wine that's going to be stocked in Terminal 1. Um, and all the wines from December onwards are going to be wines with an Irish connection. So I think that's a really lovely placement. But in the airport, the point of departure and the point of arrival for so many people are going to be able to tell this story of um, the Irish connection to wine. So that's really exciting. So that's keeping me quite busy. And very poignant too. Yes, it is. Um, it is very poignant. Um, and I just think the stories from the people who are involved in it are, are really lovely. And to do it in a place, to have that scope within the airport to be able to tell these stories, these successful stories of people who left in sought their fortune um, in an industry that you wouldn't think that Irish people had a connection to because I said of the soil and of not being able to grow grapes but the ability of the flexibility of Irish people's thinking and ingenuity that when they get to other places they just get stuck 
and use their knowledge in agriculture in a different way. Now, a wine goose chase, as we say, has been all around the country. So what is going to be the next step? What's going to be the next show? I don't know. Um, I keep thinking about this. Usually when you're involved in theatre, people tend to write shows quite regularly. Um, And what I love about this is that new, exciting things keep coming out of it for me. So working with Dublin Airport is really, really exciting and fulfilling. I'm also doing some television work on TV3 as well, presenting drinks with them on the Late Lunch Live show. So I haven't had time to sit down and write something else new because I'm really excited by the new possibilities that this show gives churning up. So um, I'm sure at one stage I'll sit down and go, right, I need to do something different now. But at the moment, I'm just really enjoying the journey that I'm on with it. Well, that journey is bringing you to the Culture and Chips Festival on Friday the 30th of May at 12.45. You'll take to the, the stage, the bar, whatever the setting oh, is for it. Beautiful. We're so, I just can't believe how lucky we are to be performing this Spiegel tent. It's going to be absolutely gorgeous. The tickets are 15 euros and you say you get a glass or two or three of wine with that? Yeah, you'll get one glass of wine that's divided into three tasting samples and a little nip of brandy as well. So it'll be a nice way to spend a lunchtime. Absolutely. And people can book online at cultureandchips.com and if they want to find out more about you, Susan, your website is awinegoosechase.com. Yep, awinegoosechase.com and that's where they'll find out about me and if they um, tune into TV3 on a Wednesday I'll be talking about drinks as well so they can can have a look at me beforehand. Fantastic and we wish you continued success with it and we look forward to welcoming you to Limerick. I can't wait. Thanks very much, Sharon. Thanks, Susan. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. In its eighth year, Bloom is one of my very favourite annual events. And if you've never been, you might be surprised to learn that there's a huge food element to it. I'm delighted to introduce Board B as Horticulture Manager Mike Neary to the programme. Hello, Mike. Hello, Sharon. How are you? I'm well, and you? Not too well, thank you very much. Mike, Bloom is the largest garden food and family event in Ireland. Over 110,000 visitors last year, a staggering number. What makes it so popular? Yeah, I, I suppose it's hard to believe that, that we're in for our eighth year of, of the event as well. Um, and every every year the show has evolved and built and got bigger. Uh, and we're obviously delighted with that. I suppose it, it's it's built up a huge loyalty and following over the years and probably because of what what people come and see at the event and hear, particularly word of mouth, from people who've been to Bloom. I mean, you've got, uh, you know, wonderful show gardens, a fantastic floral pavilion, um, a, a fantastic entertainment stage, catering offering, but in particular, as you mentioned earlier on, the food element of Bloom has grown year on year and probably now is, is probably equal in importance to the actual gardening and horticultural element. And in fact, both of them go hand in hand, they're complementary. Um, and every year when we do a survey after Bloom, of visitors who have been to Bloom, we say, what do you like about the event this year? And both coming to see the gardens and the food village and the food element of Bloom score very, very highly and very, very strongly. And I think people come back each year to, to, to get that experience again. Well, there's lots of different features to the food side of it. There's the arts and food village cookery demonstrations and the Bloom farmyard. Now, those are just a few things. So what would be the most popular element of that? Yeah, as, as you say, I, I suppose the food village itself, is, it's, a, it's a special area within the show. And it's like a show within the show, if you like, Sharon. And I think it's probably the mix of features within that that attract people. And as you rightly say, we have an arts and food market 
um, which uh, represents there's about 60 arts and food companies from all over the all over the country, um, um, exhibiting and selling a range of products. So anything from dairy products um, to condiments to uh, preservatives to jams to juices. It's a full range. I think a lot of people actually come like to be able to meet because the people that are actually meeting is the actual producers of that. And I think a lot of people in terms of you know, learning about the food, where it comes from, um, is certainly an important resident, particularly in the current time at the moment. Uh, we also have the Bloom in there, and we have a number of craft beer companies who are, so you can go in, you can actually taste the product and purchase the product. And we have a meat and fish market, a food and veg market. And we also have Love Irish Food, which is there, a very important organisation who are highlighting and profiling some very good Irish brand companies and what they're doing on a day-to-day basis, creating local employment and, and presenting fantastic Irish brands and as you mentioned yourself there, the, the stage is ever popular. This is the quality kitchen stage. And uh, as in previous years, we have some very, very good chefs, uh, not just promoting and highlighting Irish ingredients, but how they can be used to generate some fantastic meal options. So we have people like Nevin Maguire, uh, Donald Ski, and Kevin Dundon, and Catherine Fovey back again with us this year. So I think it's not one thing, Sharon, I'd say it's probably the mix of the different elements of the food village that actually attract the people to bloom. And it's important to highlight to people that once they get in the, the gates, that's it, they don't have to pay for anything else, well, if, unless you're buying bits and pieces to take home, but the cookery demonstrations and all those other aspects that you mentioned there are at their disposal. Uh, ab- absolutely. Once you're on, it's a 70-acre site, and I suppose one thing we often say to people is that try and come early, and in fact, this year we're opening an hour earlier, so in the past we used to open at 10 o'clock, this year, for the five days of bloom, uh, we're going to open at nine o'clock in the morning till six o'clock in the evening. So, advice there's a lot to see. Advice people come here, come early, and get a good chance to see every single element of bloom. So, from from seeing as uh, the, the show gardens, the floor pavilion, the fantastic flower displays, enjoying the entertainment, and um, but also spending quite an amount of time in the food village. It takes quite a bit of time to get around, and so as, as you say, once you've once you've paid to get into the event. Uh, all the entertainment and, and the actual uh, chef's demonstration, that's, uh, that's, there's no additional charge around that as well. So advise people to come early. And if you want to avoid any of the queues at the gate, if you go onto the, the website, bloomthepark.com, you can buy your tickets in advance and get fast queued into the event as well. So it, it'll be busy. And certainly if you can come, come early. The Thursday, Friday are often slightly quieter days. Um, so they're, they're days that people might, might keep in mind as well. So there's a lot to see. So we just advise people, come early and spend as much time as you can at the event. Now, did I hear something that there was going to be a ten-foot Mr. Tato there? Yes, this is this is actually one of one of the show gardens, um, and every single year, um, that's one of the new elements of the event. There's different gardens. So this year we have a total of thirty show gardens covering three thousand square meters, and one of the large gardens this year is is actually a, is is a garden um, which is sponsored by Largo Foods, and as that that's actually showing the process of of making crisps. So it shows it from, from the primary product, as it says, to the final product. And that's what the garden reflects and what it shows. And part of that is actually a giant display of, of, of Mr. Tato in the actual garden itself as well. So you have to come uh, to see exactly what that will actually look like as well. In every single one of the gardens, there's something very, very interesting um, and very unique to see as well. So again, um, you know, we'd invite people to come early and, and get plenty of time to go around because 3,000 square meters of gardens, it's a lot of gardens to see, but you'll, you'll find some nice surprises in it. The other question I had for you was about the well-being wetlands. Oh yes, so this is in this is in one of the uh, one of the show gardens area, and and again, um, it, it's one of our gardens. And I suppose again, what it what it is reflecting um, is I suppose something that's unique and something different that you wouldn't normally see 
in a garden here in Ireland. So it's actually telling a story around cranberry production um, and how that actually takes place as well. So, and indeed, many of the gardens was a link with the food uh, team, if you like, particularly around grow your own food, produce your own food and sustainability. And people can see that as, as they go around. So your advice, Mike, is maybe to go on the Thursday or Friday, get there early so that you can see as much of the, the show as possible. Yes, absolutely. As I said, it's a large site, 70 acres. If you come early um, and get a chance to, 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 as I said, to get around the event in a nice, leisurely pace as well. Um, it's, it's easy to spend a very full day at Bloom. We're open from nine o'clock in the morning. So uh, people come early, then that means that they'll have plenty of time to get into the event and enjoy all that there is to see. And my tip is to bring your shopping bag because there'll be lots of bits and pieces there that you'll definitely want to buy. Yeah, I, I think the, the retail end of it is quite strong. Um, and certainly, as I said, in, in the food market, we have a total of 115 companies who are exhibiting and retailing and selling food as well. So if food is your fancy, certainly bring your shopping basket. But we also have some crashes on site as well. So if people want to buy some products, leave it aside to come back to pick it up later on they can certainly do that and all the car parking actually is right around the event so if you do want to pick up some things and like get, get a bit carried away that's not a problem you better pop out of the car easily leave the product and come back in, in to buy some more as well but certainly that would be advisable it's a, great, it's, a, it's a great retail opportunity as well So it's starting this Thursday the 29th of May and it runs throughout the bank holiday weekend until Monday June the 2nd for full details visit bloominthepark.com Thanks for talking to me Mike and here's hoping the sun shines like it did last year I hope, Hopefully it's well we're, we're keeping fingers crossed for, for a nice dry five days And I look forward to seeing you then all right, okay. Thank you, Sharon. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleunter. Time to have a look at events taking place throughout the country this week. And I'm delighted to announce that fellow Northerner Helen McDade from Fulcher, Ireland, will be fulfilling the diary segment on a monthly basis starting next week. But let's turn to this week, and as the long weekend beckons, there's lots of events for you to enjoy. Now, Culture and Chips in Limerick and Bloom in Dublin both start on Thursday, with lots happening up until the Monday. Closer to home, starting on Friday until Monday, we have the Irish Coffee Festival in Foynes. That's three days of free family entertainment, celebrating the creation of Irish Coffee in Foynes in 1943. There's a float parade, fireworks, circus workshop, street entertainers, food and craft fair, a 5k charity run and a carnival also and also on Friday and Saturday this weekend if you're listening in from my hometown I have to give a shout out to Balamina Agriculture Show which was known as the Cattle Show or the Kettle Show in my day that's May the 30th and the 31st and if you've any energy left after the bank holiday weekend on Tuesday and Wednesday the 3rd and 4th of June the Dublin Gastronomy, I've been practicing that all evening, Symposium is on in DIT. This is a collaborative initiative to bring gastronomic researchers and enthusiasts together. All are welcome to attend this symposium to dine, debate and interact with like-minded foodies. During the two days, over 30 papers will be delivered on a wide range of gastro-related themes. For details of all the aforementioned events, check out discoverireland.ie forward slash food. Thanks to everyone who has emailed and tweeted me event information. If you have any food or drink related items coming up, be sure to let me know s.noonan at live.ie and we will give them a shout out here on the best possible taste. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleunte. That's all we have time for this evening. If you missed any of the programme or even a previous one, you'll find it all up there on soundcloud.com. Just have a look for Food and Drink Show and you'll find us there. Thanks for your company tonight to producer Geraldine O'Sullivan and all of tonight's guests. 
Be sure to tune in again next Tuesday at 8 o'clock and until then, enjoy the long weekend and bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!